Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic podcast. How should the UK and its allies treat the rise of China? The Critic's Deputy Political Editor, David Scullion, met Dr Talcote, Director of the Good Governance Project and Research Director of the Free Speech Union, earlier this week to get his thoughts. Dr Radomir Talcote uh, has just written a paper on um, how China is uh, marching through the world's institutions. And he joins me now on the Critic podcast. Uh, Radomir, when the uh, the UK condemned China's actions over Hong Kong, uh, the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab said in a statement, we don't seek to prevent China's rise, far from it. We welcome China as a leading member of the international community and we look to engage with China on everything from trade to climate change. Is he right? Should we be welcoming the rise of China? Thanks, David. So this, to me, depends on the meaning and what we mean by the rise of China and it being a leading member of the international community. We should welcome its rise in the sense of increased wealth and we always hope freedom for the citizenry of any country. But we can't pretend that's all China's rise means anymore, least of all this year. The first question is domestic. It seems to be that um, as the power of China's government rises in the world, freedom within China is not increasing at the same time any longer. The government has more power over people's speech It has more control, probably not less, compared to 10 years ago, over the economy and more control over Chinese civil society in general, which is very worrying. And then next, there's the international question. So, of course, we have to engage with China, but we should be cautious about what China sees being a leading member of the international community as meaning. So on the strategic level, it's been clearer become clearer in recent years what the ascendant tendency in Beijing thinks leadership means. So Michael Pillsbury discusses in his book The Hundred Year Marathon that this seems to mean the influence of scholars who have long seen that hundred year project from 1949 when the Communist Party took power to 2049 as being in order to replace the US as the sole global hegemon. Some of these have been quoted directly in speeches by Xi Jinping and um, they have described what that means in terms of competition with democratic values. So many of them see China's leadership as meaning rule by virtue will it replace the rule of law and democracy. And that's how some of these um, leading thinkers in China describe it. So it's increasingly clear that we're talking about an ascendant superpower whose leading cadre now understands virtuous governance as meaning turning the clock back to pre-enlightenment political norms that are based on authority. And, of course, that affects China's tactics, its attitudes to rules in UN institutions, and so on and so forth. Um, so British policy towards China uh, has uh, changed somewhat. Under 
David Cameron and George Osborne, we seem to be encouraging anything, any investment uh, in nuclear energy and everything else from China. Today, that's changed. Uh, um, but your report suggests that it hasn't completely changed. Your report suggests that we're still being quite naive about China's intentions. What examples did you discover where we're not taking them seriously enough? So there, there are a number of examples. Um, the first is we talk about the attitude to rules in UN institutions, where it's clear that some of the Chinese heads of UN institutions, and there are four Chinese heads of the core institutions compared to one each for the US and UK, for instance. Some of them act at the behest of the Chinese government. This is against the rules of the UN, which demands that they they should not represent a nation state while they're employed by the UN. And there are aspects of that that are very similar to the USSR during the Cold War. So that means we can talk in due course about about other examples, but that in itself means that strategically the UK should probably move away from mollification towards proactive defence of rules-based liberal systems. So we need to be promoting democracies as much as possible as leading members of the international community, and this should include the creation of a D10, that's the G7 plus India, South Korea and Australia, as a democratic tech alliance. And we should also ask questions about the wisdom of UK membership and funding of the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which is one of the core institutions within China's Belt and Road project that it has established and within that project for foreign infrastructure ownership and acquisitions abroad. So there are, there are the beginnings of a strategic shift, I should add, in number 10, but there's much, much further to go. Number 10, for example, has also begun analysing the core economic dependencies that we have on China. But there are deeper questions to be asked about the extent of China's influence in UK civil society, in education, and uh, so on and so forth. So, so this is this is really just the beginning. But I mean, you know, you talk about China as a uh, threat, um, and China have definitely done things which the interna- international community haven't liked. But you know, is it possible that as a nation, we're, we're just trying to hold on to our grasp of global institutions? You know, surely China's increased size means it's entitled to a bigger share of the pie. I mean. You know, why shouldn't China help to do things like set standards on technology? Are we just being a bit jealous of their increased power? We should, I think, understand the nub of our strategic problem, the scale of the strategic challenge here. If we think about the growth in human prosperity from about 1815 to 2000, this was partly because the two successive Anglosphere superpowers represented more freedom-promoting powers than the alternatives at the time. Human prosperity growth is now slowed, and some would say essentially on hold, and that is partly because of the integration into the global economy of a new, very large autocratic competitor. Specifically, it follows a policy of a, a mercantilist refusal to follow comparative advantage, and it pursues dominance in a very wide swathe of subsidised industries to the detriment of a good deal of the workforce in the West and elsewhere. This strategy is partly to keep the CCP in power, but it's partly detrimental, it's considerably detrimental to our prosperity. So 
China is entitled to be represented at international institutions and to be involved in setting technological standards and so on, of course, and naturally having a larger economy will result in some increase in commercial representation in those institutions, in diplomatic representation. But the question is, what is it trying to achieve strategically and how is it trying to do so compared with what should be UK aims? So we discuss in the paper that China's companies are carrying out core aims of Beijing in technological standard setting organisations. They are promoting standards for facial recognition and surveillance techs that will allow market dominance for Chinese firms. And they're increasingly attempting to change the architecture of the web itself to allow more state control. And then we see commercially follow up country by country. So there are, there are aspects of China's strategy in the international institutions that certainly have nothing to do with jealousy about China's power, but are necessary to understand if we are to defend liberal democratic values in those institutions. Um, you mentioned that uh, China subsidises a lot of uh, industries to the detriment of the West. But a, f- a free marketeer might say, well, look, you know, China's uh, pursuing a mercantilist approach. It's heavily subsidising certain industries. And that means we get cheaper stuff in the West. Uh, you know, we're actually the ones laughing at this. What would you say to somebody who, who put forward that line of argument? Well, it does in the short term sometimes mean that you get cheaper stuff. But it also affects the destiny of Western industries and it affects the efficient allocation of investment. It's become harder, it seems, to get bang for the buck, as they say, in innovation, partly because a great deal of intellectual property um, is clearly being infringed and appears in Chinese products sometimes before, sometimes at a similar time to Western and Japanese products, for example. So comparative advantage, the concept of comparative advantage is is not um, particularly controversial, but it's related to many other strategic questions for Western countries to do with future economic growth, where um, China has, has demonstrated that it is, to put it mildly, does not see the requirements of being an actor in the rules-based system, including in the WTO, in the same way as Western powers. I suppose uh, the free market theory would doesn't really take into account uh, the idea of hostile states that are doing this to kind of uh, gain market share and then using that leverage. Um, but on a different point, you know, your, your title, uh, The Long March, you mentioned The Long March in your title of your paper. Uh, and that's the phrase that the communist Gramsci used um, to describe how communists can take over institutions from within and uh, kind of co-opt them towards their aims. How does what you're warning about China... Uh, interact with what a lot of conservatives are saying in Britain and in the US and in the Western world about how uh, that process is taking place within our own institutions, within um, uh, the civil service, within local government, within... Uh, it's a very interesting question because... And, and how let's does that go back interact to that with what you're saying about China? Chinese tech companies um, and their activities trying to promote uh, standards... Um, and also their relationships with developing countries in particular. So their follow-up, country-by-country that I mentioned, um, includes in um, East Africa. And we talk about, in the paper, examples of 
state internet surveillance systems that have been set up by uh, a number of Chinese firms in uh, Uganda, Tanzania, and Ethiopia, for example. So this may sound like a caricature, but the fact is that while UK aid has included financing an Ethiopian version of the Spice Girls, Chinese firms have been busy signing contracts with governments like Ethiopia for internet surveillance systems that have demonstrably led to the arrest of democracy activists and are now helping roll back democracy in the developing world. So who has the more coherent strategy? The relationship to that is that UK international strategy has in different areas become so hamstrung, and aid is a part of that, because of the agendas, frequently cultural leftist agendas, that now dominate our institutions, including institutions of state. So if you want to spend money on girl bands to promote female confidence, well, that, that may be well meant, it's not wrong in itself, but how confident will they be if they are being monitored through their mobiles by the state? So we have to be very careful because many of the divisive, the more divisive agendas, cultural agendas in the West today, of course, are not run by China, just as CND as far as we know, wasn't run by Moscow, although some left-wing projects during the Cold War were. So also Antifa is not a project of Beijing by any stretch. That said, unwittingly or otherwise, leftist movements have to an extent represented China's views and Beijing will be happy to see them, to have seen them do it in some cases. So for instance, students at UCLA called for the removal of an academic who defended his colleague's use of saying, quote, Wuhan virus, unquote. So Beijing does seem quite aware of the potential for the use of PC for its own agenda also, because early in the pandemic, some Beijing-linked cultural institutions in Italy began warning people that it was racist, that it was wrong to link the large number of Chinese immigrants, including from Wuhan, with Italy's early high infection rate. So there are shades of the USSR's approach to Western academe, to Western cultural institutions during the Cold War. And so I think people involved in some of these more divisive projects should ask themselves why it is that there's a similarity between some of their views and China's views. And that's to do with the potential use of divisive movements in the West for a major competitor. So what you're saying is it's, uh, you know, as China's rising on the international stage and as China is uh, has increasingly global reach and increasingly increasingly global influence on institutions, at the same time, the kind of uh, the, the woke agenda in the Western world is kind of rolling the pitch for China uh, to pursue its aims. Well, the extent of divisiveness in the cultural arena and in in politics in the West cannot be good, in my view, for a coherent strategic response to China and to an increasingly aggressive autocratic competitor that seeks to undermine democracy and its success. So in in your example about the Ethiopian Spice Girls, that monitoring factory, what would actually be more useful to the country is if um, we were kind of more aware of of what China was doing, and we could put forward education programs on how to protect yourself online from foreign interference. So the UK needs now a strategic pivot back to the Commonwealth. It needs to pivot towards the 
the Indo-Pacific. It needs to cease its policy of what a former colleague of mine has called benign neglect to Japan. And it needs a coherent strategy working with allies, especially the United States, but also, as we discuss in the paper, willing Commonwealth partners in international institutions to rule-breaking by China. And it, it also needs a technical response, a technological response in standard-setting organisations to stop the onward march of the apparent project of creating a more autocratic, state-monitored internet architecture. These are totally crucial for the UK's approach to freedom in the world today. Um, at the start, you mentioned a book. You mentioned The 100-Year Marathon by Michael Pillsbury. Part of his uh, thesis in that book uh, is that as part of China's plan to take over as the global leader, they've been spending huge amounts of money on disinformation campaigns around the West to kind of disguise what their true intention is and to trick the West into complacency. Do you think coronavirus has, has marked the point by which China's stop pretending that they don't want to become the world's only superpower? I wouldn't see the growing understanding and debate about China's ambitions as being the result of Chinese intent. They haven't sought the opprobrium. They didn't intend for this to result from COVID. And, you know, I, I don't buy the conspiracy theories about COVID and the, the pandemic being any, in any way intentional by China. I think what's different now is that Xi Jinping is clearly more... Um, expansive, more aggressive than his predecessors in the South China Sea, in the apparent um, invasion of India in the Golwan Valley and the testing of India and so on. So the question is whether this is an error, actually, whether this overt expansionism is, is a strategic error, because it's not quite like the hide your brightness, so-called hide your brightness policy pursued since uh, Deng Xiaoping. Um, hide your brightness, the concept meant do not provoke Western reactions until China is in a position of strength, sufficient strength to handle those reactions. However, COVID and other factors, some by accident like COVID and some by choice, now result in provocations that are increasing the understanding of Beijing's long-term strategy. What Beijing's long-term strategy appears to be in Western capitals, um, in New Delhi, in Tokyo, and so on. So it does, 2020, I think, does make mark a turning point. It's clearly a turning point in popular understanding of the reality of China's rise. But whether it's a point of strategic advantage for China, that's not clear. Uh, and final question. I mean, you've written this report. It's quite long. Uh, possibly not all policymakers will get the chance to read the whole thing. If you could boil down your recommendations for how the UK and its allies need to um, shift their positions, what are your conclusions? So we divide our recommendations into three. We talk about UK domestic responses. We talk about responses within the international institutions. And we talk about responses to China's institutions that it has set up in competition with some international institutions. So domestically, it's quite right that the government has begun a project to reassess strategic UK economic dependence on China and where those choke points are. We think that should go deeper and include where there are risks, um, for example, within the education system for IP, intellectual property. That's one example. 
So there needs to be consideration of why the Chinese armed forces have sent hundreds of people to study in UK higher education institutions, including hard science institutions. This reassessment will also look at the access of companies that the US has started to act towards, who, according to the State Department, are responsible for weapons proliferation to Iran and North Korea. On a defence level, they don't appear to be active in the UK, but there needs to be a, a domestic and international response there. In the international institutions, as I've said, the UK needs to be begin with partners such as the US to coordinate the promotion for election of uh, shared candidates, shared candidates by democracies, and respond in a coordinated manner to rule-breaking um, where it happens within those institutions. In China's own institutions, such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, the UK there is a member, unlike Australia, Japan and the United States, and it funds the AIIB. We suggest that this is strategically unwise and the UK needs to look at that, and that should be a part of uh, a more realistic approach to, well, the question you first asked, which is, in what ways do we seek for China to be a leader, and where do we respond where leadership means uh, a threat to liberal rule-based norms of international institutions in the world? Dr. Radomir Tarko, thank you very much for coming on the Critic Podcast. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.